not just theology, right? Biology is for doxology, right? Chemistry is for doxology, right? Um, and, and that's ultimately our, our first and foremost calling um, as believers. Um, and, and I like to put that as the noun um, as, a, as opposed to my profession um, there. So, so that's why I sort of you know, put doxology as first. And then we just all praise God in different ways. And, and um, you know, especially thinking through, you know, the, the, the Reformation where, where Martin Luther, right, really sort of thinks through, right, the, the priesthood of the believers, like even the milkmaid, even the baker, right? They're all praising God in different ways um, to be able to do that. So, so in a personal sense, I really think through um, how, how do we, um, in, in all, all our different professions, um, really praise God in those ways. And, and, and the way that I live through my praise of God um, is through the sciences. Uh, my name is Jimmy Lin, and I am a scientific doxologist. Welcome to Language of God. I'm Jim Stump. As you just heard, our guest today, Jimmy Lin, describes himself as a scientific doxologist. The scientific part of that title describes his work to find cures and treatments for cancer and rare diseases and effort he has devoted his career to. That effort has resulted in hundreds of published papers, including in the prestigious journals Nature and Science, and it's resulted in some real progress toward taking the fear away from a cancer diagnosis. But in calling himself a scientific doxologist, and by making science the adjective, he puts the emphasis on doxology, which is to give praise to God, and in that way he sees his scientific work as a kind of hymn or sacred song, and this infiltrates his work. While it might not change the specifics of how he runs an experiment, it does change why he does the work that he does, and how he manages relationships in his work, and what questions he chooses to pursue. We talk about his scientific work and hear about the recent advances in cancer science and then talk about doxology and how his work and all of our work fits into the framework of praise. Let's get to the conversation. Well, Jimmy Lin, welcome to the podcast. We're glad to be talking to you. Thank you. My pleasure. So you've had some contacts with BioLogos before, or at least some people here have worked with or under our founder, Francis Collins, but I'm guessing that a good chunk of our audience doesn't know you too well, so let's remedy that first. Tell us a bit about your life. Where'd you grow up? What was your family like? Yeah, well, well thanks for having me on. Um, I um, grew up in Taiwan. Um, um, in a sort of medical family, um, went to high school um, in Canada, grew up in Vancouver, mm. um, and then um, undergrad um, studied computational biology and computational linguistics. <laughs> so you said you grew up in a medical family. Is that what kind of put you onto the career path you're on now? Or when did you, when did you like first think, I want to be a doctor when I grow up or a scientist? Yeah, the the joke we always say is, you know, when you're a kid, your family, you know, asks you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, in my family, is um, what kind of doctor do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> the options were rather limited, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, and do you see though, as a kid, that you were leaning that way anyway, just because of the environment, or what? What drew you into this? Um, so I eventually did a combined MD PhD program. Um, and my my interests were more sort of innovation and sort of research. Um, so 
Um, so those were things that I was, and as a kid, I loved, you know, inventions. I, you know, my, my, the people I looked, mm-hmm. you know, towards were like Thomas Edison and love, you know, <laughs> all of So those were the things I loved. Um, and then being in a medical family, then sort of really sort of put that love for um, discovery and, and research um, in a field where we can make, you know, impact uh, on people's health. Um, mm-hmm. So that became a sort of a great marriage of sort of my desire uh, for discovery and and you know applying it in in the healthcare space. Mm. Uh, you've not been uh, shy about the fact that you're a Christian, um, but I think I've seen that that came a little bit later in life. What was the religious aspect of your life like growing up? Yeah, I grew up pretty much um, culturally um, sort of Buddhist. Confucius, you know, I'm in Taiwan um, there. Um, and then because of the sciences, you know, thinking a lot about, you know, whether uh, th- there is any sort of religious belief that was important. Um, and it was not until college um, as, a, as a freshman, I really started to think deeper um, on sort of, you know, why are we all here? Um, mm. um, my, my whole life, I think as a kid, Asian kid, where it was sort of the rat race to get into the right high school, to get into the right college, um, to be on that path. And, and now that, you know, I got into, you know, one of my dream schools, I was like, so so what? Um, and that's when I started thinking a lot about and asking these sort of deep questions um, there. And I think that my, my sort of, let's say, faith in science popped pretty quickly um, when in my intro sort of organic chemistry class, I was talking to the professor about sort of the dynamics of, of atoms and molecules and a lot of these sort of um, the reasoning a lot along these many different things and quickly actually exhausted the, the depth of the answer. He's like, actually, that's, mm-hmm. that's something we don't know yet. I'm like, wow, I'm just a freshman in college and <laughs> I'm already sort of mapping the, the end of understanding of this particular scientific field. And that's when I started really sort of exploring um, the different religious faiths um, then. Hmm. And uh, was this Yale? Did you go to Yale as an undergrad? <laughs> I went to Yale for undergrad, yes. And so were there people around you then that helped in that uh, discovery and journey toward accepting Christianity? Yeah. Um, it was actually funny. So we talked about organic chemistry. Maybe that, that had a big change in my faith. Um, my organic chemistry lab partner um, was a believer, um, and he was hmm. in, involved in um, one of the campus ministry, Campus Crusade. Um now known as Crew, um, and and was very sort of open to sort of talking with me about these things and invite a lot of friends. And um, I jokingly said I, I made a lot of people cry debating against them um, about you know <laughs> I was as I was exploring. But but the people around me were were all very very gracious. And then the people from university then also came, and and a lot of people poured into my life. Um, and helping me understand a lot of these different questions um, about the Christian faith. Well, and, and at the same time, I was exploring, you know, the the religion of my upbringing. You know, what did Buddhism say? What mm-hmm. does Confucianism say? And I think at the end of the the, the the journey, it became sort of really clear for me, at least, that the difference of religions that sort of you know pull yourself by your bootstraps and trying to save yourself uh, versus of a religion of grace. Um, and I was really exhausted trying to, to be on this journey and 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 lost because you know I had a lot of faith in science and, and was unmoored there. Um, and it made sense that you know if there was a God and God really cared about His creation, that you know 
God wouldn't just, you know, provide no solution. And then to, at that time, it seemed like, you know, um, that, that the person of Christ was very compelling um, and the Christian God. And, and that mm. set off, you know, um, uh, a journey where initially it was sort of more of a, a sort of a leap of faith, but then really digging into sort of apologetics and learning more about it. And um, um, and then so, so that sort of started to sort of grow deeper in my faith. There. Mm, neat. Well, what about today then? What uh, what branch of the Christian tradition do you identify with now? Um, during graduate school, um, um, you know, I, I was sort of um, as part of becoming a, a medical doctor. You study for very rigorous board exams, and um, during that time, I studied easily, you know, fifteen in fifteen hour days plus um, over, you know, three four months. Um, and, and at that end of time is, you know, you feel, you know, so much, um, and, and I thought, you know what, have I sort of, if I dedicated even a fraction of that time <laughs> into my understanding of faith, right. like what would that look like? Um, and that's when I started to explore more, um, the different branches of Christianity. And, and ultimately, um, I started, you know, to take classes at Reformed Theological Seminary, um, there, mm-hmm. um, and, um, so, so I've been on that path, um, and within that branch, for those who care, right, um, I'm, you know, study a lot of the teachers from sort of Westminster um, and the Philadelphia side, um, presuppositional and my apologetic um, there. So, for those oh, who good. care, the, the, the more the, the nuances there. <laughs> yeah. Well, we uh, hear from lots of scientists who say that their professional peers don't really understand their religious commitments, and their church family can be a bit suspicious of their scientific attachments. Does that describe your experience at all here as a as a professional with this faith commitment? Yeah, and I think I, I see myself, um, you know, in the same way that Paul, um, you know, was was a missionary to the Gentiles, right? I, I see myself too is being that bridge um, to the scientific community um, there um, in, in that sense. Um, so, so yeah, um, figuring out what are the ways that, what are the gods, unknown gods that, that you know, scientists sort of profess to and help them understand um, the God that Christians believe. In the same way, I think to the Christian church, there's a lot of fear of what science mm-hmm. um, potentially you do, and and there's also just um, lack of knowledge um, there. So so I try to at least sort of ho- hopefully demystify and you know and communicate and provide bridges across these two um, seemingly diverse communities. But one of the things I always say is again this sort of recent this um, divergence between science and faith is rather recent. Um, I always talk, you know, if we think about many and many of the, the famous cr- scientists um, that laid the foundations of what we know as modern science, whether it's like like Francis Bacon, you know, the scientific method, or Isaac Newton, um, think about, you know, physics, um, thinking about uh, Mendel, right, biology, mm. like many, many of, of, of the foundations of, of science were done not only by Christians, but committed Christians mm-hmm. um, there. So, so again... Um, that's one of the things I try to dispel is this sort of seeming um, um, sort of chasm between the two. But again, throughout the the hundreds of years and even sort of the foundations of modern science, actually the two were very much sort of in sync with each other. And in fact, a lot of modern science were done by, you know, people with strong convictions of their Christian faith. Yeah. 
Well, uh, I want to come back to talking a little bit more about this interaction between uh, Christian faith and your work in particular. But before we do that, let's hear a little bit more about your scientific work in particular. Much of much of this has been focused on cancer research and rare diseases uh, and treatment and prevention of these. So where did that come from? Here's Here, I guess, is the question from your family. What, why did you decide to become that kind of doctor? Why did you specialize in those areas? Yeah, um, I think cancer, like many people, um, has affected my family. Um, I've had really close member, you know, members of my family um, pass away early uh, from cancer. Mm. Um, so that that was an area that um, I felt you know um, was, was going to be important. And then just sort of scientifically, cancer is actually a rather um, easy system to understand because it's a system where you know what normal looks like, and then you can look at what cancer looks like. Um, um, so, so, and it seems sort of tractable as a system there. So that really sort of drew me there. Um, so, so yeah. So when I was you know, choosing schools to pursue sort of my MD PhD, um, I literally chose um, to study under sort of the, you know, what I think is probably the most brilliant sort of father of cancer genetics, uh, Bert Vogelstein, who was at, at Johns Hopkins at that time. So I literally chose that school to be able to study under him. Hmm. Well, tell us uh, about your work now and and what you do and the organizations you're affiliated with. Yeah, so some of that earliest work um, that working with Bert is is this is after you know um, the human genome was mapped. Of course, BioLogos everybody knows uh, you know, right. Dr. Collins' contri- <laughs> contribution to that. Um, but our thought is, you know, now the human genome is mapped, can we map the equivalent for cancer, the cancer genome? And with my mentor, sort of thesis and really sort of proved over the years that cancer essentially is a genetic disease. So if you can map the genome of cancer and then map the genome of the person, the differences are potential to causes of these disease. Um, and and that, that set off in you know, a work that I did as my graduate work there. And then eventually, you know, programs that you know, Dr. Collins oversaw um, at, at, you know, at um, internationally as well, um, and then, you know, in the U.S. called the Cancer Genome Atlas, international programs. And that really caused a, a, a huge explosion of understanding of cancer um, there. Um, the the first phases of that was this area, again, the, the listeners would know is precision medicine. Again, Dr. Collins has written a book about that. It's really thinking through, can you find um, the right genes to give to the right people with that mutation. And that was my initial work, sort of after my MD-PhD. Um, I was faculty at WashU in St. Louis, where I did exactly that, is um, started um, working on different works where when people have cancer, we map their, their, you know, their genes and then see whether we can give the right drugs to the right patients. Um, so I did that in, in different settings, um, um, first at WashU. Um, but eventually, the, 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 the field started to move, you know, not just sort of looking at the cancer tissue, but can we find that signal just in the blood so it's non-invasive? So, so I joined um, a company. Um, well, I did the first at WashU, and, and I, I was uh, a little bit of time also at NH doing some of the work, um, looking at tissue, being able to profile, but eventually joined a company, firstly um, at Natera, um, looking at, you know, using, not looking at tissue, but using blood to measure cancer. And then my current job here um, in a company called Freenome is in, in instead of measuring people with cancer after they have it, can we detect the cancer um, before even they have it or early on um, in terms of early cancer detection? Um, so that, that's sort of part of what I do um, mm. in, in, my, in my day job. 
Oh, thanks. What are maybe some of the most exciting or promising things in cancer research that people might not know about yet, but you've been working on, or at least that you see coming down the pike? Yeah. And I, I state this and people are shocked to hear when I say this, I, I think, you know, again, depending how old you are, but I think cancer will be a chronic disease in our generation. Um, mm. um, that's similar, a good you know, thing, right? Yes, that's a great say, thing. <laughs> many people yeah. might hear chronic disease and say, oh no, but that's better than cancer. So Yes. Yeah, like HIV, right? So I think yeah. HIV again was was a death sentence and, and a very very scary word, um, but but I think cancer um, we can make it that so so we have many more mm. cancer survivors than people passing away from it. So so that's that's a combination of a lot of more um, therapeutic options. Specifically, what's most exciting is in immunotherapy, where you know Christians can can really relate to this, where instead of you know giving toxic chemicals um, to be able to mm-hmm. sort of kill the cancer, hopefully killing the cancer more than the person. Yeah. Um, there are ways that scientists have been able to leverage our own immune system, right, um, that, that God already gave us, and how do we activate that uh, to be able to fight cancer? Um, so this this field of immunotherapy is really, really exciting. Um, and, of course, the area that we're working on is early cancer detection um, to catch it earlier. And ma- most cancers, if you catch them early enough, actually – if you just do surgery, it can treat a lot of them. Um, and then, you know, so catching cancers early is is, is going to be so transformative. So um, and so sort of between better ways of catching them and then treating them better, I think there's going to be a dramatic increase in survival. Yes, cancer is better heterogeneous. There's hundreds of types of cancers, but many, many cancers, I think, will be able to do uh, very significant changes in terms of outcomes, um, again, within this generation. So, uh, does cancer in the in its very earliest stages leave some sort of signature in the blood that you're detecting? Is that what we're trying to work on to find it in the earlier stages before it manifests itself so much? Or what does how do you go about detecting it before somebody has it? Exactly. No, exactly. It's to figure out what is the earliest signal um, that cancer gives off um, in the blood. Um, that you can be able to find. Um, and, and that signal often is very faint. So let's say cancer, let's say that's maybe one centimeter in diameter, right? And it sheds off a little bit of DNA and protein, and it's then your whole body has about five liters of blood that it's all dilute. So you need to find that very faint signal, literally sort of needle in a haystack mm-hmm. um, to be able to see that. And then you also want to leverage our, the, the way that the immune system reacts to it as well. Um, okay. so, so those are, you know, exciting ways to be, be able to figure out whether we can be able to catch cancers early. And what about uh, testing people uh, genetically to see what their risks are for, for cancer that may not have started yet, but that they have a genetic predisposition? I think we hear the most about like breast cancer in this regard, that, that some signature in the genome has been found that makes you more susceptible. Do you expect that to improve or are many of these not not so directly tied to our personal genome. Yeah, that's a great question. And in fact, um, that's probably an area where we do very well in because of you know because of the Human Genome Project, we can map people's genomes now um, relatively. You know, instead of the billions of dollars, it can be thousands or even hundreds, uh, depending on who you talk to. So we can map everybody's genome um, there. The, the, the hard part right now is figure out. What genes are the ones that cause predisposition? So breast cancer, there's you know a couple of very famous genes like the BRCA genes that has a very large effect, 
Um, so those we can we can measure, and then you know we can then say, okay, you have a higher predisposition. But there's a for for many many other cancer types, they're they're not um, these you know big genes effects that that you can sort of understand. Mm-hmm. And, and most most cancer actually is, is not because of genetic predisposition, but okay. because of sort of you know later onset you know, mutations or you know um, you know whether through sun through through smoking. Um, so. Um, but but it's definitely part of the arsenal to be able to understand cancer. So how far away are we from when at my annual checkup, uh, there's going to be a cancer screening of some sort? Will that just become a routine part of everybody's health care in the not too distant future? Uh, many companies are working on that. Um, and I think um, there are, you know, um, and we're all trying to sort of get to that goal. Definitely. So I think it's, you know, definitely within, you know, five to 10 years. Oh, really? Um, th- those will be sort of options there. Mm. Yeah. Well, let me turn uh, a little more theological here then about cancer in particular. There's an article on the Biologus website called, Is Cancer Part of God's Good World? It was written by a guy I met who right after college was diagnosed with desmoplastic small round cell tumors, mm. if I'm saying mm-hmm. that correctly. And like uh, more than 85% of such people, he died within five years of that diagnosis. Oh, wow. And this piece we have on our site is really remarkable. He wrote when he was in the midst of treatment. And part of it says this. He says, cancer is not evil, at least not any more evil than the weather with its potential for deadly blizzards and hurricanes. I see cancer as a messy, ugly, yet necessary byproduct of the ever-changing planet we find ourselves inhabiting. Would you agree with that? How do you respond to that? Is cancer part of God's good world? Wow. It's hard to sort of respond to you know, someone who's really sort of lived that experience. I can say as a scientist, uh, an understanding of cancer really sort of a critical thing is sometimes people think um, because they, you know, maybe watch, you know, read comics and think about mutations um, and think about X-Men and, and you think yeah. about cancers are these sort of super mutations or, or that that's sort of a progressive uh, nature. Uh, and these are um, these are even sort of better. But but that's actually not the right way to understand cancer. Cancer is, is actually a broken cell. Um, and and it's broken because of, for example, it, you know, all cells have controlled growth, right? Um, they know when to stop. Um, Cancer has broke has that that is broken right. Um, all cancer you know all cells know where to grow. Um, that is broken in cancer right, and, and it grows in, in places it shouldn't be growing. It's growing in speeds that it shouldn't be growing. Um, so I think the cur- you know to not think cancer as this sort of next step evolution of a better cell, but in fact cancer is a broken of a process. Um, so. To think about you know theological framework, then then you can you know very easily think through right. Um, cancer is not sort of a, a adapted next step, but but part of the sort of broken world um, that we live in. Um, so so again, a lot of the processes of the cancer cell is um, um, uh, brokenness and alterations of systems that, on the other hand, would be very very good. So w- one of the things that cancer hijacks is a process called angiogenesis. Um, it's, it's sort of creating new bloodstreams. And that's that's amazing that God created the system where, you know, 
blood cells can grow to different areas of, of the body so it can be perfused. Um, but then cancer grows in the wrong place, then it hijacks that purpose um, and, and so that it can feed the cancer. So, so in, in terms of that, I think, you know, to think about theologically, cancer is that broken process and it's hijacking a, a lot of the, the systems that God has already sort of put in, in place um, there. Um, so that sounds like it's not the same as, say, weather, that we need dynamic weather patterns in order for the, for the earth to, to thrive and to support life. But when you have dynamic weather patterns, sometimes you're going to get tornadoes and hurricanes. So those are, those are more byproducts of a necessary system than they are a broken part of a system where it sounds like you're saying, no, cancer is just a broken part of the system. Is that right? Yeah, and I put this in, in the same same with diseases in general, right? Um, um, sort of diseases, I, I, don't, I don't think was, um, right, part, you know, it's not part of God's sort of initial plan um, in that sense. And, and cancer is a very clear um, showing of that where it's something that has gone wrong. language of God listeners. If you enjoy the conversations you hear on the podcast, we just wanted to let you know about our website, biologos.org, which has articles, videos, personal stories, and curated resources for pastors, students, and educators. And we've recently launched a new animated video series called Insights. These short videos tell stories and explore many of the questions at the heart of the faith and science conversation. You can find them at biologos.org insights, or there's a link in the show notes. All right, back to the show. Um, so lots of people feel that in the interactions between science and faith, the influence flows in only one direction, that, that scientists get to tell us what they've discovered about the world, and people of faith have to just adjust to that and retreat sometimes even from their beliefs. But I've heard you talk more about the other direction of influence, how being a person of faith influences your scientific work. So you introduced yourself as a scientific doxologist. You're going to need to explain that a bit here now and why you prefer that designation and how your faith is an appropriate modifier for what you do as a scientist. Yeah, maybe come through it sort of to two different aspects. So first, personally, and then we'll sort of talk more sort of, you know, in terms of systematically is... Um, as a, as a Christian, as a believer, um, um, you know, we are all called, uh, first and foremost, um, as, as taxologists, as, as to, you know, glorify God um, um, as sort Can of the most important. Can you explain the Greek of the ducks? What, what is a doxologist? If we're all called to be one, we better know what this word means. It's someone that sort of praises, right? When you sing the doxology at the end of some um, of some services, right? It's the the thing where you know, praise God from whom yep. all blessings go. So it's someone who praises God. Um, okay. And I learned this um, specifically, actually um, adapted from J.I. Packer, um, who in in his some of his um, serm, uh, seminary teaching um, at Regent, I was listening to some of the the uh, recordings. Is he says. Um, theology is for doxology, right? Um, so, so people can study, you know, even God, but not necessarily just for academic purposes or just for fun, right? But really, really mm -hmm. Jerry Packer thinks about um, that. No, we study God in order to praise Him, um, and I really sort of thought about no, it's not just theology, right? Biology is for doxology, 
right? Chemistry mm-hmm. is for dexology, right? Um, and, and that's ultimately our, our first and foremost calling um, as believers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I like to put that as the noun um, as, a, as opposed to my profession um, there. So, so that's why I sort of, you know, put doxology <laughs> as first. And then we just all praise God in different ways. And, and um, you know, especially thinking through, you know, the, the, the Reformation where, where Martin Luther, right, really sort of thinks through, right, the, the priesthood of the believers, like even the milkmaid, even the baker, right? They're all praising God in different ways um, to be able to do that. So, so in a personal sense, I really think through um, how, how do we, um, in, in our, all our different professions, um, really praise God in those ways. And, and, and the way that I live through my praise of God um, is through the sciences. Um, so does that, does that involve any difference in the things you're doing as a scientist, or is it just a difference of attitude and approach that you bring to the work of being a scientist? The hope is that my faith Again, this this is again. I, I wouldn't say that I have done it perfectly, but uh, the hope is my faith pervades um, all aspects of, of what I do, um, the, the topics I study, the way I do it, um, um, and the, how I go about it, and even the, the perception of, of how the, the science is even done. Um, that's the hope, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then, in terms of um, so so, a lot of that can you know. Um, um, be, be more evident in terms of, you know, for example, studying rare diseases, like um, where uh, some people who may be more sort of coming from utilitarian and pragmatic view of, of humanity says like, why, why do you want to spend all this effort um, helping someone who may not give any value to the world, right? Whereas I see, you know, all Christians believe that everybody is created in the image of God um, and we see value in, in, in all life, even if, even if it's, you know, this person may, may never end up speaking or getting out of the wheelchair um, there. So, so there's sort of topics there. Um, but then there's how we live our daily life as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of the experiments, yes, <laughs> how we do the science, right? In the same way that uh, the baking of a Christian baker um, should sort of look, you know, probably in terms of the, <laughs> the methods look not that much different. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the way that they operate their baking business and, and how they do that hopefully would look, look, look very, very different. And that's what I strive to um, there and, and really looking to, you know, thinking of someone like, you know, like Abraham Kuyper, right, where he talks about, right, there's not a square inch, right, in the world right, that right. Christ is not pointed to his mind. And, and that's what I hope is, is I, I don't want to look like any other non-Christian scientist and and the only difference is I go to church on Sundays um, and I try to sort of really think through of how, how can it that my faith pervades everything that I do? Do I do yeah. it perfectly? Definitely not. <laughs> um, um, but, but that's something I strive hard towards. So, so beyond the personal side of sort of living out that intersection between science and faith, I think um, there's um, a lot of thinking in terms of healthy dialogue between science and faith. And as you said, most people sometimes have the misconception where um, science discovers something um, and then people of faith just need to take it to adapt. Um, and in fact, I think um, there actually needs to be sort of really healthy dialogue between the two. Um, mm-hmm. And I talk to a lot of you know, people who are scientists who are, who are not you know, theologians or philosophers, but generally science ha- have this thinking of you know, what's often in a bucket of what's called Logical positivism. It's, it's, a, it's a fancy word, but it's just mm-hmm. saying that people of science often believe that science is the the only way to get to truth, either through you know scientific proof, scientific experiments, or from first principles. 
um, there. Um, and this is an area called within philosophy called epistemology, where how do you know knowledge is, you know, how do you get to knowledge? But if you ask, you know, and a lot of my scientist friends, you know, often sort of believe that. So I asked them then, right, if you think that science is the, the way to get to truth um, and um, only from first principles, how do you know that that fact itself is true? Um, what the you just said self-referential problem, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, and that's when, when you know, scientists start to think, okay, wow, maybe there are things that science can't answer. And that then really sort of opens up that conversation. Okay, maybe, you know, um, yes, we live in this sort of post-enlightenment world where we have cool iPhones and, um, and computers, and, and science is amazing, but science does not have the monopoly on truth. And in fact, right, there's a undergirding science is a philosophy of science. Um, undergirding that is philosophy and epistemology. How do we get to truth? And that's hotly sort of discussed. Um, and I think um, whether it's theology, whether it's philosophy, um, all bring different areas of truth and coming to bear. So I definitely don't think that there's sort of a one directional feeding of, you know, what science determines is true. Then we sort of feed it to faith. But but there should be a sort of a healthy dialogue uh, between these different areas. I don't believe it's sort of a non-overlapping magisteria that these are completely separate. I think there's a sort of interaction between them. And like, like we talked about, you know, Abraham Kuyper, we think that, you know, faith has implications on science. But but again, I think, you know, just to say everybody has something to bring to the table and to bring with humility um, there. And as Christians within the sciences, I think it's, it's very much incumbent on us to sort of see how these two interact in ways that are constructive. Good. Well, let's uh, talk about another way that both may be involved, both our science as well as our uh, theological uh, ways of knowing and uh, how they might interact. I'm, I'm interested particularly in prayer. So those of us that are involved in religious communities and share prayer requests with, with each other, I'm guessing that the number one category is for requested prayer is the health concerns of loved ones. So I'm curious for you who has devoted your professional life to finding the natural cures for some of these diseases. How do you understand the role of prayer in people getting healthy? Yeah, um, I think this is the age-old question in terms of sort of, you know, uh, um, divine sovereignty um, versus sort of human will and and how, how we can sort of affect that um, there. Um, ultimately, um, I think prayer serves couple purposes. Uh, number one, um, that sort of direct communication with God um, there is, is helpful in itself, right? Um, as we sort of lift up our concerns to him and, and he sort of asks us uh, to be able to do that. In terms of prayers being answered in the ways that we expect, um, again, being a, a person of science, let's look at some of the evidence, right? Um, who, who probably is the best human person that can pray that's most powerful? Probably Jesus, right? Um, and he, um, does Jesus get all his answers prayer? Actually, no, right? Not you know, every time. And <laughs> not in, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? So, so I think the prayer does, you know, does not work like in a way where it's sort of a genie in a bottle and everything that, that you ask for. Even Jesus himself, when he prayed to the Father, right, works it in a way that, you know, may, may not be exactly the way that he would ask for. What I do believe is ultimately, right, um, at the, sort of the long arc of history, it'll be to, to the best of the good that, that God has intended. Um, so even if, if locally, um, it, you know, it may not look like, you know, the, the answered prayer is exactly what we, we'd ask for, um, but to trust God 
um, that in sort of the arc of, of his sort of judgment and um, and um, of his plans that, that those are the, the best uh, for, for himself and for his mm. people um, there. So, um, so you, that's what uh, I think about prayer. Uh, if this isn't too personal, do you yourself pray for loved ones who are sick to get better? Oh, without a doubt. Oh, without <laughs> a doubt. Um, yeah. Uh, in fact, God tells us to pray, um, right? Jesus teaches us to pray. Um, so so um, God, you know, um, in the same way with my kids, uh, if they have something going on, even if I can't help, I want them to come to me um, and, and ask, you know, mm-hmm. and, and share together. So, so without a doubt, I think prayer is, and, and not only do we pray for supplication, right, for specific problems that we ask for, right? Um, we, we pray for, for right, in the, the acrostic that people use, right, for adoration, for confession, right, in all the different ways. And we're called to be praying without ceasing. Um, I definitely don't do that. Pray twenty four seven, but but you know I, I do hope that you know I, I live you know as much as I can um, in in a life of sort of persistent prayer. Have you been uh, witness to any what we might call miraculous healings cases where science can't explain how this happened, but people who are praying for it have a pretty ready explanation that God did something there. Early in my faith, when I first became Christian, um, there there were many small, um, uh, less probable events uh, that that happened um, in, in my own life um, um, during that time. Um, uh, were they miraculous healings? I, I don't know, um, mm-hmm. but but they they were less probable there, and and you know, um, so so I don't know. Um, um, but mm-hmm. but there there were events that that helped me when I was very young in my faith, um, um, and needed that sort of that help that that God really sort of spoke to me in that way, um, of again through through you know different ways of illness or or again things that are improbable that happened um, in a in a very improbable way. <laughs> I can't tell you the p value there, but the, the, um, but, but improbable. But but were they miracles? I, I, I don't know. Um, um, but but they were you know encouraging to me at that time. Uh, last summer on the podcast, we talked to a theologian Todd Billings, who has a kind of blood cancer and has thought a long time and written about uh, healing. And one of the things he told us is that the the New Testament conception of healing is not just fixing some part of my body that isn't working right. There's a much more holistic thing that involves not just physical, but social and spiritual restoration, and most importantly, leading to an encounter with Christ himself. And then it becomes an opportunity for that person, whether physically healed or not, to bear witness to the glory of God. And there's a way of bearing witness that only somebody with a chronic illness can do. I found that really interesting. That doesn't at all mean that we shouldn't try to heal such people, but it does go some way toward maybe explaining why God doesn't always step in and miraculously heal all chronic illness and these diseases. Does that kind of description have any purchase with your understanding of such things? Yeah, without a doubt, and even more. I think what has been very encouraging to me is is some someone like John Piper. You know, he, he wrote a book like "Don't Waste Your Life," but he wrote an article that has been very helpful to me. Is you know, don't waste your cancer, um, mm. and really taking even the sufferings as an opportunity for witness, for growth, um, to be able to again to to not only sort of see. Um, the cancer as a problem to be solved, but as an opportunity 
um, there, right? Um, and in the same way that Christ used, you know, himself undergoing suffering and you know, and participating in suffering others. Um, so, so again, um, or or even think about Paul, right? Like how he viewed death, right? Like, um, you know. He, you, you know, dying was was actually a quick way for him to go see see Christ earlier, mm-hmm. and he's like, you know what, I'll stay. So, so there was not a fear of death. Um, so, so I think as believers, yes, I think suffering is, is again is is very very hard, um, and, and and death is 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 not optimal. But but we have hope beyond the physical. We have hope beyond this world, um, and we look forward to the glories that are beyond this life. That that these things are are sort of but a sort of a small shadow um, there. So so I think that that's such amazing you know promise that we have in Christ. Uh, hopefully to you know support us through this time, but or even as we undergo suffering, um, praise God for suffering um, even in those times. Um, I know it's easier to say as someone who's you know, um, yeah. um, but but but. Um, when the times that I suffer, you know, I have an autoimmune disease, and those are the things that I, I, I try to, you know, remind myself, you know, often imperfectly, you know, of, of how to even praise God even more uh, in times of suffering. Well, it's been really good talking to you here, Jimmy. Um, I'm a philosopher by background and training, so I'm gradually gravitate, or I naturally gravitate toward the more theoretical parts of this and can maybe uh, too often sound like it's just a puzzle to be solved and might feel a little cold hearted to people who are actually going through a difficult time with their health there. So uh, I appreciate you've adopted a little better uh, bedside manner there in, in some of those comments and wonder if there's just anything else you might say to such people who they themselves or someone they love who has a chronic illness that medical science just can't do much for right now? How would, what kind of advice or counsel do you give to such people? Well, let's do the science first and then we talk about faith, right? Um, that, that, yes, I think there, there are a lot of really amazing scientific um, research that's sort of ongoing. And, and I, I would not ask someone to sort of stop looking for answers and, and, um, and, and I would definitely encourage to be involved in clinical trials and efforts there. Um, um, and there are a lot of great research. So that's number one. I, I think, you know, I, I believe in, you know, medical advances and efforts there. Um, but but in lieu of that, too, and for people sort of on the faith side is, again, um, of, of, again, that, that yes, suffering is very, very sort of difficult. But but how do we hold on to the promise of of, of what we have in Christ, um, that everything else can sort of fade away and we sort of focus on that. I myself struggle mm. with that, right? But, but you know, and hopefully as we focus on that and then see beyond this life, um, um, that helps to provide comfort um, there. And again, you know, we, this comfort is, is not coming from um, a God who doesn't know our comfort, right? Christ himself uh, became man and, and suffered um, excruciating on our behalf. So we have a God that, that under, understands our suffering um, and has a deep, you know, um, under, uh, deep. there's a deep theology of suffering in, in, the, in, in the Christian thinking there. Mm-hmm. Um, and not suffering for his own sake, like the Buddhists, but, but suffering of, of, of suffering of a, of a God who suffers with us and it provided a way out. Um, and, and that that is the amazing hope and promise um, of Christ that is unique uh, between any of other religion um, there. And it's it's amazing that we we have we worship such a God um, that provides such comfort um, during these times. Mm, thanks. 
Well, we like to end um, our conversations with our guests on the podcast with something completely different. What have you been reading lately? <laughs> um, I've been reading... Okay, let's com go completely different then. Um, <laughs> learning about um, post-structuralism. All right. Um, um, and a lot of our the current French thinking... French philosophy, and, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, and postmodernism, and there is no truth. It just seems so crazy to me of how people can believe that, uh, that there is no right and wrong. And as we you know, redefine, you know, genders, redefine all these things, you know, where, where can we seek and, and try to understand some of the, the foundations of that? It's still very mind boggling to me, but that's an area that I'm, I'm trying to sort of understand a little bit deeper. Any authors or titles in there you'd care to share? Well, Derrida is the, is the main one. <laughs> I'm trying to understand. And the keyword is trying. Yeah. Uh, well, Jimmy Lin, thanks so much for sharing with us here today. We appreciate your work so much, and we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Language of God is produced by BioLogos. It has been funded in part by the Fetzer Institute, the John Templeton Foundation, and by individual donors and listeners who contribute to BioLogos. Language of God is produced and mixed by Colin Hugerworf. That's me. Our theme song is by Breakmaster Cylinder. BioLogos offices are located in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the Grand River watershed. If you have questions or want to join in a conversation about this episode, find a link in the show notes for the BioLogos forum, or visit our website, biologos.org where you will find articles, videos, and other resources on faith and science. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.